there aren't necessarily any grown-ups in the room. And I'm not convinced that anybody, even experts of, of like the highest order, really know what the hell they're doing. I feel like they're kind of guessing along with the rest of us. They just sound a lot more confident. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And for the final time, I'm Jason Fields. So... Listeners have been asking, Jason, uh, why is this your final time? What's going on? It's been a while since you've been on the show. Well, um, I took a job with uh, something called the Thomson Reuters Foundation covering uh, human trafficking because my last job working at a Holocaust museum wasn't really depressing enough. And um, they uh, won't let me do the podcast. (laughs) So... It's just the fact of it. So I miss uh, I miss you, Matt. I miss doing the show, but it's just the way it is. So so let me get that. You could come on as a guest, but they won't let you host. I wasn't really planning on making a big deal out of it. <laughs> well, if we if we figure out a way to get you back on as a guest, I want to do that though. Sure. I think the, the I think the listeners would enjoy that. I think if we were you know talking about anything that I'm going to be covering. Um, and some of the other stuff includes like the, what's going on with climate change as well. So it's not all just human trafficking. So, so something I was thinking about: how long have we been doing this show? Because it's been you and me for has it been three years? Has it been three years now? It's almost three and a half. Is it almost three and a half? That's yeah. insane. I think we started in August. So and here we are in January. I think you're right. It, it, we did start in August because that's when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had some housekeeping stuff we had to do about like a year or so ago in August. So what, so it was kind of, uh, I feel like you and I, and was it Craig at Reuters? Yeah. Originally Craig kind of created it. the show. Um, and if I were, you know, just, just cause we're here and we're navel gazing, it'd be fun to talk about, uh, is it like, as I, I remember I was working at Wars Boring and I wanted to do a podcast and I know that you were at Reuters and wanted to do a podcast. How did we get? I don't like. How did it we get linked actually, up? It was actually really happy chance. Uh, I had been talking with David Axe, who was a major contributor at Reuters, um, writing about the stuff that David Axe always writes about: the military, defense issues, um, hardware, and his pieces did incredibly well for us on our website. I was the opinion editor at Reuters. And I thought, well, what if we had a podcast that went along the lines of what our readers are already interested in? Um, And so David and I actually tried a couple of episodes and um, they went not good. And um, he actually brought you in, Matt, and you and I sort of hit it off pretty quickly and realized that the show was a hell of a lot better than it had been before. So that's us. That's Wait, I don't – you did episodes with David before. I don't remember that. Did they air? No. No, they were so good. They never even aired. I didn't even – I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that you and Axe had tried to do tried, tried to do the show. What 
what I I kind of want to hear what topics do you even remember and like what went wrong? Yeah. Um well, let's see. I mean, it was really just simply a chemistry issue. Uh and not like you know, deeply personal or, or something like that. It's just like, you know, we didn't sound great together. And uh, we one thing that we talked about was uh, Russia's plans to build a supercarrier. And, okay. you know, it was actually a pretty interesting episode, but it just didn't come together. Craig Heddick, who was the producer at the time, really didn't like it. And so um, we were looking around about how to really make it work. And I don't know if we were even thinking necessarily about another co-host, but you were great. <laughs> yes. And I think I really, I really wanted to do it. And I think I remember that first episode. This is an embarrassing story. Didn't, didn't I lose the files for the first episode? We did the F 35 and we had to re-record it. Sure. So it was, it was yeah, you, me and no, Joe. Of course. But I mean, I did that subsequently um so i mean oh yeah everyone's done it everyone's done it everybody's tried to fuck the show in in uh in the nicest way possible <laughs> oh i can't i can't i didn't know that you and david had done those episodes i i can't believe i've been doing this almost four years and didn't know that that makes me happy somehow uh, um that 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 failed <laughs> <laughs> well he also doesn't have your voice uh so He's got a he's got a higher he's got a higher pitched voice. Yep. It's uh it's not it's not a good radio nope. voice. What's your favorite show that you think we've done or your favorite um, moment or... I think my favorite episode is still and we've put it out a couple of times but uh why nuclear war is inevitable. Um it was with Tom Nichols? No, it was uh actually with a guy named uh uh I think Tim Zack. He was at the Washington Post. Oh, Dan Zak. Dan Zak. Oh boy, Dan Zak. He yeah, he wrote that book about the uh, that opens on the the people breaking into the the protesters breaking into one of the nuclear yeah, sites. Yeah, and he was that. he was very good. But it wasn't just that; it was he made such a scary good case that in some ways, and it wasn't top of mind for people then, not really. And I thought, wow, this is a war college episode. You know, we're really telling people something they're probably not thinking about. Um, and uh, we're scaring people to death, which uh, I hope has become a signature of the series. And um, yeah, it just—I thought it really came together. I don't. Yeah, I don't. Uh, it's funny you say the scaring people to death. I don't remember exactly when that happened, where I felt like every episode had to end on a downbeat. Uh, but we certainly. Yeah, got and there. it really wasn't on purpose in any way. It's just—it feels like if you delve deeply enough into these issues. There's not that much room for optimism. Well, no. And the other thing I feel like we do is we don't, you know, sometimes I think we've been accused of playing politics, uh, but I don't, I feel like we don't have stances other than what's going on, you know, like really kind of digging into these things. And I think that that kind of can lead, lead to pessimism. Um, you know, when you look at the world stage, I totally agree. today. Oh, and you know, and I should say one other thing that's been terrific about the show is that doing it gives you an opportunity, but also gives you the balls to reach out to people you would love to talk to. Dan like Carlin, Dan Carlin. Um, and, uh, you know, Tom Nichols, actually, I mean, who, uh, you know, is uh, really 
I didn't realize how impressive he was <laughs> at the time, you know. And uh, it's just been people all along, and you have a chance to reach out to them and build something very, very cool. Yeah, we've had some really – some of the guests we've had on the show have surprised me, like Douglas Rushkoff and and Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin, who I should say we've actually had on twice, although only one of the episodes yeah, has aired. Yeah, the second one was a little weird, but I think that's an off-air story. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll just we'll we'll tease we'll tease right. the audience with that that there's a there's an off air Dan Carlin story that they'll never get to hear. <laughs> exactly. What are you going to miss? Gonna miss uh, I'm going to get totally sentimental. I, I said I wasn't going to cry, and uh, I'm not actually. It turns out, but uh, no, I mean I'm totally going to miss working with you on a weekly basis. Um, you know, I mean, really enjoyed it. I I thought our we made a really good team and had, you know, different strengths that complemented each other. And uh, I'll enjoy the subjects, everything else. But, yeah, that's the, that's the biggest thing for me. I'm going to miss you, too. You brought, like, a, 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 like a knowledge of the past and a, a level-headedness to this thing that is not going to be there going forward, and I'm frightened without <laughs> you. Uh, please stay. Honestly, if I didn't need a paycheck... I would. I know. It's... What's your favorite? What's the what's the most surprising or scariest thing you learned? Oh, that's a this? really interesting question. Um, I think it's more of a general thing rather than a particular episode. It's that there aren't necessarily any grown-ups in the room. And we have a bunch of people with a bunch of different ideas. We have some people who think we need new bombers, other people who think that new bombers are a terrible idea um, and we need something else. Uh, we have people who have clear ideas about the, what the Middle East should look like. And there are other people who completely disagree with those clear ideas. And it's very hard to tell who's right. And you have to talk to everybody. And... I'm not convinced that anybody, even experts of, of like the highest order, really know what the hell they're doing. I feel like they're kind of guessing along with the rest of us. They just sound a lot more confident. I think that's one of the great lessons of adulthood. I really think that's one of the markers of like when you actually become an adult is when you realize that everyone's flying by the seat yeah. of your pants. Um, and then I remember like becoming a journalist, like when I started becoming a journalist and really getting into it and getting into the upper echelons, being really surprised that that was still prevalent even there. And then you start doing this job and you start talking like it's even it's orders of magnitude more frightening. Yeah. And these are very, very smart people. And I don't mean to, you know, say any of them aren't experts. They are experts. And do we need experts? I completely think we do. It's just that any one human's expertise, it can't it's just not enough to guide everything going forward you know it's funny that you mentioned that because it was really a big part of this that was kind of a theme of the last full episode that i did did you happen to listen to that one about the no i haven't gotten a chance yet you need to you should go and yes of course shame on you first of all um and you should go and listen to that episode because it's really it's it's about russia and ukraine and how it was all kind of random and that there are no adults in the room. Yeah, huh. <laughs> it's very interesting. Well, I listened to it every week just because I didn't get around to it this week. Doesn't mean. <sighs> uh huh. Right. 
<laughs> I'm going to miss this. Me too. Me too. All right. So as a, as a special treat for the listeners, you've got something that you've prepared for them as a way to say goodbye. Yeah. And uh, also I appreciate Matt allowing me to be a, a bit self-indulgent, but um, history is my passion. It has been since I was a little kid. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a book. It's actually a novel. It's about the Holocaust and a murder mystery that takes place in a ghetto. Um, so you can see, again, I gravitate towards really cheerful topics. But the book does a couple of things, I think. One is it tries to show that the value of, of an individual life in a situation where death is the only constant um, it also hopefully shows a bit about how people are still people, even within the confines of the worst situations imaginable. No, not everybody's a noble, self-effacing person. Not everybody's a black marketeer. There's a lot of room in the middle and a lot of people who just don't understand, even as the worst things in the world are happening to them, they don't realize that there's no hope. They keep on hoping. And I found that utterly fascinating. Um, you know, people hoped that life was going to continue to get better, even as the ghettos were being um, liquidated. So anyway, um, on that cheerful note, uh, I've got, uh, I think, one of my favorite chapters out of the book that is read by Edna Friedberg, who is actually a Holocaust historian and a good friend of mine. Um, and uh, that's what's coming up next. And what's the title of the book and where can people Oh, Matt, I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, the book is called Death in Twilight, and it's available from Amazon. You can get print copies. You can get it for Kindle. Uh, you can get an audio book if you pay me enough because I will come over to your house and read it out loud. <laughs> it's Death in Twilight by Jason Fields. It's available on Amazon. And here is a chapter from it right now. Yes. And Jason, goodbye. And thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for building this thing with me. And I don't know how I'm going to um, do it without you. Yeah. I got saying goodbye is awful, but, um, you know, I know that you're going to do a fantastic job going forward. You've done a fantastic job without me before. Um, I think, you know, I've heard some of your plans and I think that the show's only going to get better. Goodbye. Goodbye, Jason. It was not easy to wake up hungover in the Miyashito ghetto in early 1941. Alcohol, that miraculous liquid that can dissolve the fabric of reality, was one of the first resources to disappear after the district had been walled off. Still, for the enterprising, there are always ways to leave the world's troubles behind. The return journey, though, tends to be on the painful side. Aaron Kaminsky felt like yelping when his eyes squinted open. He stared into the all-too-bright murk of his small room, dreading a day that was unlikely to be better than the day before. Aron could feel a red-hot, electrified knitting needle slowly piercing his right eye. The only distraction from it was the unproductive nausea it brought along, 
almost like a side dish at the devil's dinner table. A thin whiff of vomit rose from near his tender head. Aye, Aaron groaned. He rolled onto his side, making sure to take the various scraps that made up his bedding with him. They were made up largely of the remnants of three military blankets he'd kept after being told he wasn't good enough to be a German prisoner of war. He had little else to show for his decade outside of the Jewish community, except for the warm coat he'd been issued when called to duty and a pair of tough army boots. Aaron shifted again, and a bottle fell off the bed and into the gloom, clanking but not breaking. Aaron suspected from the sound that its final resting place was under the bed. Deserter, he thought. Aaron reached his hand out into the cold air, swept his fingers along the floor, and finally felt the rectangular shape of a pack of cigarettes. If booze was rare in the ghetto, or at least hard to find, cigarettes were almost as precious as food. A family of four could have eaten for a week on the number of cigarettes that remained in the pack. A little more fumbling, and Aaron had a tube filled with tobacco clutched between his lips, waiting for the flame. More digging, he finally had to sit up, and he was able to find flimsy matches that required a number of frustrating strokes to catch fire. The light of the match hurt his eyes, but at last Aaron was finally able to draw smoke deep into his lungs. And choke, and splutter, and hack. These were not good cigarettes. <clears throat> Sorry. The paper was stiff enough to be cardboard, and the filling was execrable, likely 80% sawdust, our own thought with disgust. He took another deep drag. The smoke tasted of roofing tar and burning rubber. But whatever the taste or quality, Aaron was grateful for his cigarettes. He'd worked hard enough for them. Sometimes he wondered if his addiction alone had led him to become a smuggler. There was no other way he could have afforded them, or anything else for that matter. Thanks to his skills and contacts, many of them developed in his time as a police officer, he'd brought more than a ton of illicit merchandise through the main gate at King Boleswaz y Chrobri, the Brave Street. More had come over, under, and through the weak points of the wall that surrounded the Jewish ghetto. Aaron and the boys, girls, men and women who worked for and with him knew the wall intimately. Well enough to know it wasn't a single wall at all, but a makeshift structure of boarded-up buildings, concrete barricades topped with barbed wire, closed-off streets, and the occasional machine-gun nest. The holes in its boundaries were what allowed the ghetto to survive. Without links to illegal food and other supplies, the ghetto's privations would become even worse. So, really, I'm doing a public service, he told himself when he needed to. Aaron ran a hand through greasy hair that mixed dirty blonde with sprays of gray. He kept it at a bristle length that would have done an angry drill sergeant proud in order to keep the ghetto's billion lice at bay. There was a water tap in his small room. Aaron carefully placed his cigarettes on the chipped rim of the grimy sink, turned a knob, and hoped for water. The pipes groaned, clanked, and finally emitted a thin stream of brown liquid. He took a drink, brought a wet hand to his face, 
rubbed, and tried telling himself that getting out of bed would be worth it. The water was cold, then just cool. Morning seemed to finally become a possibility. A sharp rap on the door brought him to full wakefulness and sent him diving for a large knife that was tangled in his bedding. The knocking continued, became more insistent. Aaron expected the door to crash open at any second, the Gestapo to pour in after. Instead, he heard a small voice. Open the door, Aaron. Aaron quietly crept toward the door and peered out through a narrow crack in the wood. It was his father, and he was alone. Shit, Aaron thought. The elder Kaminsky raised his hand to knock again. He was unlikely to go away. Aaron knew his father to be persistent, if nothing else. Accepting the inevitable, Aaron removed the latch, another latch, a chain, and a small bolt. Even then, it was hard to move the doorknob more than a few degrees without hurting his hand. If the only guest you're expecting is the secret police, there isn't much point in being hospitable, Aaron figured. He stayed in the door's shadow in case he'd missed any armed men who'd accompanied his father. The possibility didn't seem out of the question. It wouldn't even have been much of a surprise. For a few seconds, Aaron's father stared into the darkness. His son read some conflict in his body language and saw the fear coupled with it. But it wasn't enough fear to keep the old man outside. Yitzhak Kaminsky's eyes needed time to adjust to the dark, even after standing in the dim hallway for several minutes. Slowly, he was able to make out the outline of his son's face. When Aaron finally stepped forward into the twilight provided by the open doorway, his father couldn't help but step back. In front of Yitzhak was a large man with a deeply scarred face, relatively clean-shaven in a city hidden behind beards. The man's expression was hard and wary, and not like anything he'd seen on his son's face before. Ten years apart, and his only child was nearly unrecognizable. What Aaron saw was a small man who seemed to have gotten a little smaller. The light of humor he was used to seeing in the corner of his father's eye was extinguished. Despite the fact that it had been his choice to leave his family behind, Aaron suddenly hoped it wasn't his actions that had put it out. I wasn't expecting you, Aaron said with a weak smile. Truthfully, I wasn't expecting to come. Both men stood silently for a minute. Finally, it was the good manners that Yitzchak had taught his son that won. Would you like to come in? Thank you, Yitzchak said a little stiffly. Have a seat if you'd like, Aaron said, pointing to the bed. There was no other surface available. I'm fine standing, Yitzchak said. Aaron wasn't sure whether to be insulted or just realistic about how filthy his bed looked. A drink? Yitzchak shook his head. Aaron, the reason I'm here isn't social. I'm shocked, Aaron said. Yitzchak ignored that. Mr. Zimmerman sent me to get you. You still work for Zimmerman? Aaron asked, not sure if he should be surprised. Yitzchak had worked for Mordechai Zimmerman all of Aaron's life. 
Still, he hadn't known that his father had followed the old man to his new job. Why would Zimmerman want me? Aron asked. Apparently, he remembers why you left Miashto, Yitzchak said sourly. Now he needs a gendarme. The older man's tone let Aron know that nothing had been forgotten. Let me go back. Why would Zimmerman want me? Aron asked. Apparently, he remembers why you left Miashto, Yitzchak said sourly. Now he needs a gendarme. The older man's tone let Aron know that nothing had been forgiven. Aron's decision to join the world of the Gentiles was still beyond the pale. He's got a whole police force of his own, Aron pointed out. Why in the world would he need me? Because they're incompetent, Yitzchak answered. Or at least that's what Mr. Zimmerman seems to think. And this has just become a problem now? Someone murdered one of them. Now they need a real detective to find out who did it. Aaron took that last part as a compliment, intended or not. What makes you think I'd want to be a part of this mess, Aaron said. If we're talking about an officer in the Jewish police, there's a whole ghetto that would want him dead. I'm not exactly broken up by the news myself. Still, he paused. Saying the words brought back a vague, vodka-drenched memory of stumbling into a corpse just before dawn. Aaron's eyes widened, but he said nothing. Better to see how things played out, he thought. Aaron began to fumble around, looking for the bottle that contained what was left of last night's booze. You've handled murder investigations before, yes? Yitzchak asked. Aaron stopped fumbling for a moment and raised an eyebrow at his father. What would you know about the kind of cases I handled? You made the papers, sometimes. The Jewish detective solves a case, Yitzchak said. They always seemed so surprised. Well, flattery aside, I still don't see why I'd want to get involved. Mr. Zimmerman and Captain Blaustein, the police chief, seemed convinced that the Germans would hurt people to find who killed the policeman. Sounds like standard procedure, Aaron said. Mr. Zimmerman thinks it would be better if we solved the case ourselves, Yitzchak said, then shrugged. Aaron thought for a minute. Having the Germans rampaging through the ghetto would mean a lot of people would die, maybe even him. On the three occasions the Germans had flooded into the district in the last year, thousands had been rounded up and put on gray trucks. Many hundreds more had been shot out of hand. Sex or age had made no difference. And now, in particular, was not a good time to have the Germans on high alert, as far as our own was concerned. There was important business he needed to finish over the next few days. Success! Aaron found the bottle he'd been looking for. He walked over to a shelf above the sink that held a few dusty glasses and plates. He briskly wiped out two of the glasses and handed one to his father. Isn't it a little early? Yitzchak asked. Is it ever early here? Even when the sun's up, it feels like midnight. His father nodded and held up his glass. Aaron filled it generously watching the clear trickle pour nearly like syrup in the cold. He was more sparing with himself, afraid of what his stomach might have to say.
After a large gulp, Yitzchak Kaminsky felt a burning he hadn't for a long time. He savored it. Whatever the liquor was, and he wouldn't venture a guess, it reminded him of rough Shlivovitz, a Slavic favorite, or perhaps potato vodka, a Polish staple, or both, or neither. It was terrible, wonderfully terrible. Aaron hoped the hair of the dog would help his stubborn headache. After a few minutes, it did. Do you know the name of the officer who was killed this morning? Aaron prodded. His name was Lev Berson, the elder Kaminsky said. He was young, I think, but I can't remember his face or even be sure I've seen him. I don't think I knew him, Aaron said. Why would you have known him? I know a lot of people. Let's leave it at that. The two men drank some more. Yitzchak contemplated the man his son had become. Aaron tried to decide what he would do. Keeping away from the whole mess seemed the better bet. He dealt with the Jewish police every day and felt little sympathy for them. They universally took his payoffs, but that hardly recommended them. And what was the point of investigating one murder in a place where everyone was slowly being murdered? Still, Aaron decided it was worth a conversation. If he was careful, he would leave with more information than he gave away. He might even be able to find an angle that would lead to some kind of advantage. At the least, it wouldn't hurt to have the people at the Judenrat thinking he was on their side. Aaron gulped what was left of his drink. He was already in his coat. Okay, finish up. Let's go, he said to his father.